Welcome to Higher Potential with Indeed. A welcoming workplace is built from the ground up with attention to diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and openness. But the way many leaders and companies approach this is full of gray areas, uncertainty, and quite often fear. Higher Potential with Indeed is here to demystify the process through the most powerful channel possible, conversations, groundbreaking ones too. I'm your host, Erin Waddell, Strategic Insights Consultant and DNI Evangelist in Australia for Indeed. I've worked in the recruitment industry in Australia for the last seven years and have been in Australia for 10 years. In this podcast series, we'll tackle the issues we face in the modern workplace, from diversity and inclusion to remote working, accessibility, fair hiring practices, and more. This podcast is an initiative of Indeed.com, the world's number one job site with over 250 million unique visitors every month from over 60 different countries. Before we dive in, I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting today and to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders who may be listening. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing how we can take steps to help ensure LGBTQ employees feel recognized, respected, and included in the workplace. An inclusive work environment is positive for everyone. When we feel respected, recognized, and supported in our workplace, we tend to be more confident in bringing our true selves to work. And as a result, we are more motivated, productive, and innovative. But with our 2021 DNI report uncovering that 60% of LGBTQ workers in Australia feel the need to hide their sexual orientation at work, employers in Australia still have a long way to go to create a truly inclusive work environment for their LGBTQ employees. In this episode, we speak with Katharina Bien, Diversity and Inclusion Manager at Suncorp, to discuss how we can make progress towards ensuring we are building a workplace where LGBTQ folks feel supported, included, and confident to be their true selves at work every day. Welcome, Katharina. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me along today. It's our pleasure. Could you please share with us a little bit about your role at Suncorp? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so I'm based on Gadigal country here on inner West Sydney. Uh, and I would like to start our conversation today by acknowledging that Aboriginal land and, and sovereignty were never ceded. I would like to pay my respects to the custodians of the land, skies and waterways that we are on and to the elders past, present and future. I'm personally committed to the conversation of reconciliation here in Australia and, and also for our employees in Aotearoa to uplifting their voices too. So it's a pleasure to chat about uh, about my role and, and all things LGBTQI today. So I've been with Suncorp for about three years now, and I lead that diversity and inclusion portfolio across Australia and Aotearoa, as I mentioned. That's across about 13, 14,000 employees, give or take. So uh, a lot of folks, um, and there are a number of different brands under the Suncorp banner as well. So Amy or APA, Shannon's, they're probably the better recognized ones. And that means that whilst it's not a very large organization in terms of, of size, it's certainly not the largest organization I've worked with, but it, it's complex in the sense that there are different brands and so different diversity needs and, and inclusion focuses. So 
the role in itself is is quite interesting because of that. You know, we're, we're spread across Australia and New Zealand, Aotearoa, and also in terms of spread across different communities, I guess, and um, and customers and communities to, to serve. So a really uh, enjoyable, interesting uh, role with lots of different areas to get stuck into and, and really try and make a change in. Yeah, it sounds like it. And of course, can't forget all the different subsidiaries that Suncorp has. So you must be really busy trying to keep up with <laughs> everything happening across multiple sectors and countries and yes, holidays. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's quite often for, for most folks who, who work in diversity and inclusion. I've been doing this for 10 or 15 years now, I'm showing my age. Um, and I think for most folks that that's what's exciting and, and what really gives us energy about these roles because you know working within diversity and inclusion is is quite difficult and it can be quite draining and challenging conversations and challenging things to do worthwhile um so that getting that variety and that interest across lot as you say lots of different um diverse communities is is really what makes it interesting yeah and it keeps it fun i suppose keeps it challenging for sure. keeps you <laughs> <For> sure <laughs> yeah and you're always learning something i think it's important if you're if you know if you're doing work like this that you're consistently learning you're never going to hit the the nirvana of dni like there's always going to be things to learn and grow into i think it's great and so when it comes to suncorp what are they currently doing to provide equity and support for the lgbtqi plus workers um, so I think in, in general, we tend to approach inclusion or, or DNI diversity and inclusion and look at the community over about three kind of streams, if, if I can name them that or, or call them that. And usually it's around employment or, or representation. So making sure that that community is represented in our organization. Then there's some kind of education or training component to that, whether it's upskilling, you know, our leaders and our team members or uh, upskilling customer facing folks on different um, diversity aspects. And then there's also a, a special project. And usually that special project is very specific to that diverse community. So there, there are a lot of inclusion practices that you can apply across the board. But in some instances, you, know, you have very specific needs. So when it comes to LGBTQI representation, we're doing a lot of work to actually just understand where we sit as an organization with LGBTQI representation and not just what you know the data is telling us or, or how many people feel safe to disclose, but taking that a step further and looking at engagement levels and, and sense of belonging and connection with the LGBTQI employees. So yes, you know, we have X amount of, of LGBTQI employees, but how does that person feel compared to a heterosexual and or cisgendered person in the organization? So really trying to understand the sense of belonging in terms of representation there. Um, for training specifically, we have a broader LGBTQI awareness training that is available for everyone in the organization. And we also ensure that our executive leadership teams, our ELT levels, go through that training as well. And then there's specific training components that that are connected to large change pieces or new initiatives. So we make sure that there's an LGBTQI lens any over those changes. So for example, the domestic and family violence, a couple of years ago, we started looking at domestic and family violence, brought in paid leave and lots of support and considerations. But we were sure that we also ran a training session um, for leaders and team members around what that looks like in same-sex relationships too, because it's it's different in, in same-sex relationships. 
Also, when we were looking at parental support, you know, increasing leave and, and that kind of thing, we made sure that we were taking a lens on, on um, non-traditional, as it's phrased, non-traditional family units and making sure that LGBTQI folks were included in that too. Um, obviously, LGBTQI folks are, are called out as a protected attribute in our DNI policy. And we also ensure that our employee assistance programs or EAPs have LGBTQI counselors. So that's kind of all the education awareness piece. Our special project is we are just diving into this financial year, which I'm, I'm really excited about. We're looking at gender affirmation specifically for our employees and making sure that we have a consistent um, and really good experience for folks who are affirming their gender. And not Last but not least, I almost forgot to mention um, employee resource groups, which are so important in this space. And, and, and you know, most folks that you've chatted to have mentioned some kind of maybe network within their organization, but their employees that are either LGBTQI themselves or allies of that community. Um, and they're really instrumental in operationalizing the strategy at a groundswell kind of level. Um, so we have an incredible really, really great supportive employee resource group as well. And they make a world of difference. I love to hear about companies having employee resource groups because it tells me that they're really listening to their employees and they really care what they have to say. A lot of the time, I feel like there's probably things happening at a ground level in a company that maybe the SLT isn't aware of. And that's where these employee networks can really employee resource groups can really come in and start to make the management and the leadership teams aware of things that are happening that need to change. And it can be so powerful for a company to not only give their employees the space to be passionate about either their community or the community that they're an ally of, uh, but also to grow as a company in a way that they probably weren't expecting to grow or needing to grow. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. And I think it's, I mean, it's, it's vital to to any organization that they have the right voices at the table, you know, that yes. we, we all have different parts of our identity, right? We all have different you know, diversity cards, as I like to call them, but we can't speak for everyone and getting a good cross-section of folks at the table is so important. And I think that an extra step too, as you said, you know, it's important to, to hear those voices, but making sure that as much as, as we rely on them, you know, as a voice and, and to sense check things, making sure that, that they feel like they are being um, appreciated for, for that. And that's why I call them a resource group, right? So that, that they get through their involvement, that they get some upskilling there, right? They're, they're able to grow professionally, that get exposure to leadership teams that they perhaps wouldn't because of the, the nature of their role. And they get to to really benefit from that executive or, or senior level sponsorship. I, re I think it's really important sometimes some organizations, um, for no ill intent at all, will will uh, put a lot of emotional labor on an employee resource group, or, and they will do a lot of the work, and but not recognize the fact that you know they're such an incredible integral part of the conversation in in organizations, and and both folks need to realize the value of that. Exactly, and I think it's really important when you said about making sure that they have a seat at the table and a voice that they are the ones driving the decisions based on what their community needs instead of having those decisions made for them. And that, I think that goes for any underrepresented group out there. And I just wanted to talk about something else that I think, especially with the LGBTQI community, is really important to touch on, especially when it comes to a workplace setting. There are a lot of people in the community that have varying degrees of self-comfort with being out in the workplace. Indeed did a recent survey and found out that, in fact, 
60% of people that identify as LGBTQI plus say that they don't feel that they can be open out at work. In your opinion, how can a workplace support those that might not necessarily be out at work? I think it's it's such a great point, Erin, you make around some folks will not want to d- disclose, and that can be for a lot of reasons. So I, I think it's really important to note that not every LGBTQI person wants to or is planning to come out. And, and there, are, there are a lot of reasons for this, and they're all you know probably as unique as the person themselves. But being out and out of the closet, it shouldn't be seen as the end goal for somebody or the only valid way of being queer, right? So I came out when I was 15. And as difficult as that was, while I was still living with my family, I was being raised in rural Catholic Ireland and attending high school at the time. So it came with the difficulties, but that was still a privilege for me. I was in a privileged position to be able to do that. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to acknowledge that. Um, and, and linked to that, which I guess is, is you know, the, the next part of your question, linked to that is that import, workplaces, I think, need to realize that when their representation data or their diversity data is telling them the truth and when it isn't. So, you know, there may not be the amount of folks disclosing, you know, that's actually reflective of your organization. It's common, I think, for organizations to, to business plan against an employee segment or a customer segment, you know, understanding who your customers are so that you can adequately support them. And for, for some diversity communities, LGBTQI folks in, in this case, representation data is traditionally low. I mean, you gave that statistic um, in your, your comment, which is, you know, shocking, but not surprising, as they say. So it would be easy to think that, well, that's just a small percentage of our employee base. So let's focus on another, you know, more largely represented group. And that's sometimes where DNI, diversity and inclusion planning can go a little bit wrong. And, and some folks might ask, well, you know, how am I supposed to know what to do if I don't know, you know, my data, if I, if I don't know who's around the table as such? I think that the best practical tip I think that I can give is, is treat it as overall inclusion. So role model safe spaces for your employees in general, not just the ones that you know about, right? So in, in practical terms, because it's all well and good to say that, but in, in practical terms, you know, you could maybe have a look at the gendered language you're using, you know, uh, unnecessary gendered language in, in policies, maybe in uh, uniform mandates or anything like that, if you have them. So, or, or maybe, you know, even if your diversity data is telling you that everyone in your organization identifies within the binary norm, then maybe that's because you're asking the wrong questions. Um, but you can also do symbolic things, again, without, not, without needing to know how many LGBTQI folks are in your organization. You can acknowledge significant days in the queer calendar. So, you know, wear it purple, um, Ida Hobbit, International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia, Mardi Gras or Pride, you know, make, make training available and, and, and role model inclusive language. You, you never know who's sitting at the desk opposite you or, or at home, you know, who's on the, the virtual call. Or who's around the same meeting table. So I don't think that organizations should just cater for those folks that they know about. It should be inclusion broadly. And it's interesting that you say that because there is a statistic that says 
you know, there's probably more people that you know or are at your workplace than you actually realize who are in the LGBTQI plus community. For sure. And I think it's between six and 10% of the population identify as queer. And I think that what you said about you never know who's listening or just because they haven't come out to you or they're not, it's not known that they're out. You don't know how they identify and it's better to just be inclusive altogether. That's a really great tip. And just on that as well, a lack of complaints is not an indication of workplace inclusivity, especially for the LGBTQI plus community who may remain silent out of fear. What resources can a workplace instill to ensure that employees who identify as LGBTQIA plus have the space to voice their safety concerns anonymously. Yeah, wow, it's gosh, it seems like one of those foundational 101 kind of things to say that a, a lack of complaints shouldn't be what you focus on, but but you know, I understand why why you would want to look at that. It's it's certainly not the best measure of any inclusion initiative, but I think for a long time we've given the the business case for diversity diversity and inclusion, we've spoken about, you know, it, it can reduce complaints, right? And it can increase engagement and reduce sick time leave and, and time taken out of the workforce. So there definitely has been conversation that has been skewed around complaints, right? Um, but I think that whilst it does help the business case to a degree, that that's appropriate at, at some levels to have that conversation, but it's far more valuable to measure what you want to have, if I can express it that way. So rather than measuring based on negative outcomes that you're looking at what you do want to build you know a safe inclusive workplace that's that's much more valuable than than looking at the measure but i digress um what can organizations do i I guess at this point what we're talking about here is really looking at your your internal systems and your internal complaints processes and making sure that there are no inbuilt or inherent biases in that process um, and making sure that there's a support system for employees. I, I mentioned earlier, you know, our employee assistance program, EAPs, most organizations will have those. So ensuring that there is folks on the other end of the line that are versed in and confident in LGBTQI issues, that's, that's a good first step. Also looking at your harassment and discrimination policies, you know, looking for that inclusive language, but making sure that you're calling out protected attributes in there, such as um, gender identity, such as sexual orientation. And these are are things that you can do without an employee ever ever having to hold their hand up and say, you know, I'm queer or I'm part of the community. Um, Making sure that your leaders are educated so that if there is a complaint or if there is an issue, they understand the systems of redress. And conversely, that that your employees understand that too, so that your complaints process is is really easy to access. Um, you know all the steps to follow. And I think another good uh, good tip, if organisations can do it, especially when it comes to anonymity, is building in questions in whatever feedback or engagement surveys you run. Most organisations will have maybe a six month or an annual type of engagement survey. Um, it's really good there to, to build in some feedback sections in that too. So yeah, I think there it's really about just understanding your processes and, and looking for those inherent points of discrimination and addressing that as best you can. When it comes to making sure that you have the right people and in the right roles, that's a really, really big one. Because if you mm-hmm. have, if the person that someone needs to take, if there's, if, if you are an employee that has an issue mm-hmm. and you don't feel comfortable going to the person 
that you need to, to talk about mm-hmm. it, then that can be a major cog in the wheel for even Absolutely. raising the issues in the first place, which mm. is where the lack of complaints can kind of mean nothing, right? Absolutely. And Absolutely. Especially if you think about different types of workplaces. And I actually mm. have some interesting stats that I can share from our white mm. paper, which is that 81% of queer workers in customer-facing roles like retail or hospitality say that they hide their sexual orientation at work. Mm. And that's that changes to 63% for office environments. So those are some pretty high numbers of people. And I I can just imagine that if you feel like you have to hide yourself at work, that you're probably Mm -hmm. not going to make a complaint if something's going wrong, because then that's going to out yourself when you're not ready to do that. And it has a chain reaction. Mm. So these little things can really build up to big problems for companies, I think. Definitely. And and I think if I could pick up on your point about folks who are in customer facing roles, you know, the, the retail statistics, I think that that's such um, an important conversation to have as an organization. A lot of times you can tend to be a little bit inwardly facing and, and just look at your, perhaps your enabling parts of your organizations or, or those folks who are not on the front line, you know, not on the branches in the store or whatever it might be. And I, something that that's really important in those instances is to ensure that you that your customer aggression policies or your customer aggression training includes things like LGBT hatred because of uh, LGBTQI status the same way as it would would and should include hatred and vilification because of ethnicity or heritage i think it's really important that our our complaint systems and all those type of bureaucratic processes um if you forgive the phrase that they're not just built around knowledge workers you know they're not just built around the person who sat at a desk which is incredibly important but that they're inclusive of everyone in your organization including folks who might face it not from their colleague but for when somebody walks into a store yeah I mean, I hate to say this, but I think we've all experienced that. Uh, I can think of multiple examples of being in a store where I'm seeing certain people treating certain employees a certain way because they're not, they don't look like them or they don't have the same accent as them, let's say. Right, yep. exactly. I know, yeah. here we are. Here we are with our, <laughs> our, our super Australian accents. Um, and that's I not love just, the diversity in this podcast. Oh yeah, and it's, this, and it's not just Australia. It's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, for sure. But- Here's here's another really interesting question that I would love mm. to get your take on, which is how can a workplace ensure that employees, including people who identify as transgender or gender diverse mm. or non-binary, mm. or those that might be going under gender transition, are acknowledged as the gender with which they identify? Big question, isn't it? Um, and look, I think that even the way we think about these questions you know, being acknowledged for being accepted in spite of there's that it's that's such fundamental 101 basic human respect kind of stuff, you know? Um, and when it comes to, to, to gender affirmation in the workplace or non-binary gender fluid identities in the workplace, I think it's something that that's quite new to organizations to talk about. I've worked in, in DNI in Europe, um, in Malaysia and in Australia. So, you know, three different parts of the world that were at different parts of their, their journey um, with, with this conversation. And I think that um, this idea of, well, you know, how, how do we make sure that somebody who's affirming their gender is acknowledged as their gender? Well, like that, that's a great start, but that is and has to be only the start. Organizations need to think about 
each point of the employee life cycle. So if I'm affirming my gender and, and I come to interview for your organization, are my correct pronouns used? Um, is my correct name used? And that comes down to, you know, we talked about bureaucracy, but that comes down to, well, when I filled out the form to apply for the role, was I given a, an option where I could identify? Um, was I given an option that tied me to my birth certificate, which may or may not reflect who I am? All those kind of things that, that organizations need to think about in terms of each step of that employee life cycle. And for me, acknowledging that is only the first step and it should be a fundamental case of, of respect and decency. Why is it important to ask someone their pronouns? It's a great conversation, right? Um, I think it's important to ask somebody their pronouns because it's important to know who you're speaking to. And I know that sounds, I'm not, I don't mean that in a flippant way at all, but um, if, if I was, I'm, I'm a cisgendered woman. And if I went into the organization and somebody kept calling me by my incorrect name and kept calling me a him or a he, I would, I would feel very uncomfortable. Uh, I would not feel acknowledged or seen, and I would feel misrepresented and, and ultimately silenced. It's so I think it's important again, you know, I go back to that basic level of, of fundamental connection with the human that, that we know who we're speaking to. And a, a tip that I, that I often give is, comes back to those visual symbols to put pronouns in your email signature. You know, the way there's often a place for, you know, your name. So it would be Katharina Behan and then my role and whatnot. Just put in brackets, she, her. Because the more we normalize these things, um, the more people will start a conversation, the more people will ask what might seem a silly question. Well, what is a pronoun? Well, that's, an, the, that's a space to engage and, and to educate, right? Yeah. And it's not hard to do. <laughs> no, it really, <laughs> it really isn't. It takes you no time. Uh, most of us indeed have our pronouns in our emails as well. That's something that we, we've made an effort to do, which I think is, it's the easiest way to show your allyship with someone that might not fall within the traditional gender spectrum, which I think is a wonderful place to start. When it comes to safety, this is a big one for the LGBTQ plus community. 13% of queer people feel that they are not treated equally where they work. And 20% work in places where they are not confident action would be taken in response to discrimination, which is terrible. So where can LGBTQ plus workers that are facing discrimination turn to if their workplace fails to respond to their needs and they feel unsafe? Wow. It's a, it's a terrible situation. And, and those statistics, again, are, it's just... It's just quite um, sobering, those statistics. I think, look, at a, the most obvious answer to me is the Australian Human Rights Commission, right? The HRC. LGBTQ rights are, after all, human rights. And, and that seems like an obvious thing to say, but for some folks it isn't. And, and unfortunately, for some of these organizations that you're speaking about, perhaps they don't realize that either. And, and these rights, specifically LGBTQ rights, I mean, they've in, in Australia, they've been protected under federal law since 2013. Um, that seems far too recent, but, you know, protected under federal law since then. And that's protection against any discrimination based on sexual orientation, gender identity, or, or intersex status. Um, so if your organization, if you've exhausted all the internal avenues and you are getting no redress or no support from your organization, then there are times when you need to step outside of that. Uh, that takes a lot of bravery and it takes a lot of support. But I would absolutely recommend the Australian Human Rights Commission. 
and your organizations will pay attention to those uh, complaints. Absolutely. You know, it is sobering and it's, you really hope it doesn't have to get to that point. A person is a person when it comes to them doing their job, that should be the only thing that matters. Let's just put it that way. Even the fact that we are having a discussion about pronouns, that wasn't happening 10 years ago. Even the fact that there are employee resource groups dedicated to people on the queer spectrum, people that have disabilities, that's something that wasn't around even in the 90s, early 2000s in a lot of companies. So hopefully when it comes to the allyship side of things and when it comes to the intersectionality of people who maybe they are part of the LGBTQI plus community, but they might also have a disability and they might also be from a culture where being either of those things could have a serious detriment to their life, their work, their happiness. Can you just talk to me a little bit about the importance of intersectionality? I absolutely can. <laughs> <laughs> Great. It's, it's, it is one of those things, you know, you've mentioned that workplaces are evolving and it feels slowly sometimes, but, you know, conversations that we couldn't have in the 90s, we started having in the early 2000s, you know, conversations that we're having, you know, right now we couldn't have five years ago and the conversation will continue to change. And I think that that's intersectionality is definitely something that organizations need to start looking at. and. And, you know, and, and be, and even the education around it. So not one person, as you said, not one person has just one thing about their identity, right? Not just one thing that's unique or diverse about them. And, and the importance of intersectionality is it's, it's not a shopping list of, of all the parts of your identity, right? It, it looks at what happens when those different parts of your identity meet uh, and to cause and compound that discrimination. Um, and so, you know, even if I, if I look at myself, I don't speak on behalf of all neurodiverse or, or chronically ill, disabled or queer women, right? But we know that queer women are more likely in, in Australian workplaces to experience sexual harassment. We know that um, women with disabilities are three times more likely to experience sexual violence and twice as likely to experience that from a partner. Um, women with disabilities are less likely to be in paid employment and then women without disabilities and when women with disabilities are in employment they're paid less than women without disabilities and they're paid less than men with disabilities i think that's a really important thing to look at so if you're if you're a minority within a minority it's no longer whether or not your needs are being met right it's it's no longer whether or not you've got the support systems it's that your needs are not even being thought of Workplaces are a microcosm of society. If you are invisible in everyday life, if the, if the intersectionality of your experience is invisible and unheard in everyday life, you are going to be invisible in the workplace, in organizational policies, in frameworks. And organizations will lose out unless they start looking at that. You know, they'll, they'll lose talent by not acknowledging those intersections. They'll cut out those innovative voices and solutions. They'll cut themselves off from the communities they do business in, the customers they serve. Essentially, they'll be silencing a large section of that. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a unicorn. <laughs> there are many women like me, you know, where we're in society, we're in the workplace or in your teams and, and organizations need to start looking at that. Those were some very powerful words. And I, I, as a disabled woman, I feel, I feel that in my bones because it's true. You're already facing an uphill battle in life in general. And then when you put it that way, when you layer everything else into it, it's, it's really frustrating. I mean, you are, you are, I am people who are 
in underrepresented groups are literally just as capable, smart, and contribute just as much to their organizations. So knowing that this is such an uphill battle, and this really is a great way for us to sign off, and this is our final question. What is it ultimately going to take to ensure a better and more inclusive workplace in the future? We really do need a better awareness of what inclusion is and not, you know, some of the conversations we've spoken about today in in terms of the complexities of intersectionality, but, but just the fundamentals of what inclusion is and and where your organize, where your organization sits, understanding who makes up your workforce and how you can support them better, you know, support them to, to do their jobs better, to be high performing, to give you those better business outcomes, to deliver that great customer service, whatever it might be. And I think organizations need to be realistic about where they are too. you know, run a gap analysis, have, a, and that, again, that sounds fundamental, but understand where your gaps are. And it may seem daunting at first, but start making those steps. Inclusion is, it's not a nice to have anymore. It's not a, an HR project, a human resources project or an org design project. It's not a, a safety and well-being event. I think that you know, if, if a global pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we need to be agile and we need to be innovative in how we approach things. So, you know, practical things, if COVID in your organization has made you start looking at different ways of working, don't let our transition back into the physical workspace stop that, right? Flexibility is a huge enabler of inclusion. So I, I guess to, to sum up a rambled answer, it is uh, education, better education at all levels of your organization, including yourself, knowing your own positions of power and privilege um, and empathy. I could talk to you for another two and a half hours. <laughs> Gladly. I think that you're right. It's it's making sure, especially when it comes to the LGBTQ workers, that it's just making sure that they feel safe at work and that their voices are being heard. I think that when it comes down to it, if you have if you have that, if you're making sure that yourself, your organization, your employees, your managers are being educated with a degree of empathy and that you're at least allowing the space for your queer employees to show up as whoever they want to be at work for any for anybody that works for you. It's for anybody that works for you to show up as themselves, be their true selves at work. You will have a much I don't want to use the word happier, but a much more cohesive and probably less attrition. You'll probably have less attrition in your workforce, all the good stuff. So inclusion really does benefit everyone at every level. Katharina, thank you so much for being here with us today. This has been an absolute delight. And I really thank you just for your wisdom and the tips that you gave and your openness. It's been wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's Personally, it's very important for me to be very visible in, in who I am. So I'm an openly out and proud queer disabled woman, and I will take up space. Um, and I want to do that for the folks who don't have a voice. So it's that's really important for me. And I've, I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Higher Potential with Indeed. Before you go and start building a better workplace, don't forget to hit subscribe. And leave a review if you found this podcast helpful. If you'd like to read our full DNI report, click the link in this episode's description to fill out the form. Just a quick note the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the guest do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Indeed. Additionally, the information in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, 
All content we discuss is for general informational purposes only, and you should consult with a legal professional for any legal issues you may be experiencing.